You're listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, Chris, what's that? Hey, Tony. Not much, man. Sorry I'm late today. It's windy out there. I had to secure my password before it blew away. Oh, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Ken Kors, data security savant. Ken, this is Tony, best bartender this side of the street. Hey, Ken, what's up? Nice to meet you. Oh, before I let you continue this awesome barcode experience, I need you to sign this little privacy disclaimer. Essentially, saying we don't collect conversation, information, and then resell it to the big tech. Hey, Tony, uh, no problem, man. I'm all about data confidentiality. I like this, by the way. Please care, don't share. Only four words, nothing hidden in this fine print. Awesome, thanks, bro. Oh, did you guys hear? We had an attempted break-in last night. Oh, what happened? Uh, Our new intern, still waiting on IT to create the credentials, so they left the spare key under the doormat. Jeez, that's bad. Although, how did the break-in actually happen? I don't know. We don't even have a doormat. Oh, that's a rookie mistake. Yeah, good thing we were prepared for it this time. Our IDS immediately alerted us. The authorities were rushed out here. They arrested the perpetrator. Let's just say that in turn, going with the wind. (laughs) Oh, dude, that's bad. Just shows you what one critical lapse of judgment can do. Ah, for sure. Hey, I got a great drink for you. It's been a really successful hit among the patrons here lately. It's called the Divatini. Check it out. It goes one ounce of limoncello, one ounce of vodka, half ounce of grapefruit juice, half ounce of cranberry juice, half ounce of lemon juice. Throw all your ingredients into a shaker filled with ice, shake it, strain it into a martini glass. Some call it fabulous. Nice. Well, Ken and I got to run. Got to check in with this acclaimed data and privacy expert today and get the lowdown on properly securing your information. Got your data, bros. Stay secure. I'll see you next round. Debbie Reynolds, a.k.a. The Data Diva, is a world-renowned <laughs> technologist, thought leader, and advisor to multinational corporations for handling global data privacy cyber data breach response, and complex cross-functional data-driven projects. She's also an internationally published author, highly sought-after speaker, and top media presence for global data privacy, data protection, and technology issues. I'm honored to be joined by a true technology visionary and top leader in the data privacy industry. Direct from the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois, Debbie, welcome to the show. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you guys for the invite. I'm really um, thrilled to have this conversation with you all. And uh, I don't know if you all know, but being asked questions is one of my favorite things. So I'm going to have fun. That's why I'm here. And I'm also joined by my co-host, Ken Kouris, who is a data security architect and like myself, very passionate about data security. So yeah, let's get into it. To kick things off, Debbie, if you wouldn't mind, could you walk me through your background and down the path that you took to get into cybersecurity? Sure. So um, I guess I'll just start with my technology background. So I 
taught myself actually to use computers. So when I was uh, like a senior in college, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and I wanted to, my original plan was to go to law school, uh, but I wanted to find something that I could do where I could spend more time with her. So I decided that I would teach myself to do computers or learn how to do computers. And I would do kind of desktop publishing and graphic stuff, design stuff for people. So that's kind of my foray really into computing and computers. Uh, But I fell in love with databases and data flows. So I eventually ended up in library science role uh, where I always say, uh, you guys are too young to remember this, but when libraries had card catalogs. (laughs) Oh, come on. Uh, so I was helping libraries with um, digital transformation, basically. So creating databases from books and periodicals and media stuff. Uh, and then I eventually moved into helping um, Fortune 500 companies create databases for legal documents. And because of the Internet and technology, a lot of that stuff wasn't paper anymore. They ended up being kind of digital information as we're seeing digital information snowball. But as I was working also ended up working with a lot of multinationals that had data sort of all over the world. So I have been working in, you know, data privacy or having to deal with data flow issues internationally for over 20 years. And then two also something that happened uh, uh, early on in my kind of thought about technology or privacy. Um, I actually read a book in 1997 called The Right to Privacy. Uh, it's actually a book that my mother had she thought was really interesting. And I read it and I was sort of hooked. So for me, the idea about sort of what's private and what isn't, uh, what uh, what are individuals' rights, what companies should do. Those are things that I sort of kind of kept tabs on for over 20 years. So about six years ago, I was speaking at a conference about privacy and a uh, a woman in the audience, she was a general counsel at McDonald's Corporation. And she asked me to come talk to their corporate legal department about GDPR. And this was before GDPR came out. So uh, after that, almost everyone asked me about privacy. So I thought uh, it's been good because of the regulation. People become more interested in it, obviously, because of the fines and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, working in this space and I'm enjoying working with people all over the world uh, as they sort of tackle privacy issues, especially corporations that are trying to move data around. So I want to pivot over to COVID and, and data protection since COVID-19, the, the U.S., uh, well, the FBI reported a 300% increase in reported cybercrimes. And I believe this is a result of remote workflows making more inroads to cybersecurity attacks and data breaches. I'm curious to know if you have seen this increase yourself. Should organizations be strengthening or readjusting their data protection controls as a result of the pandemic? Yeah. This, that's a great question. I think it has multi layers to it. So I, when the pandemic first came about, I knew that this was going to be a big problem, not just because people were working from home, but just because of the way that uh, hackers work. So 
if you think about it, let's say before COVID, um, uh, it's kind of a formula, right? So they try to get people to do something that they typically wouldn't do. They try to get people, um, let's say there's like an emergency or urgent situation, right? Uh, and then they want them to do it fast, do whatever, take what action fast. So because of COVID and people sort of changing their whole life around or their, their workflow, you know, it gave people who had, you know, nefarious, you know, intent, just sort of a fertile ground because people were, a lot of people were nervous. They were doing a lot of different things that they probably wouldn't have done. So, you know, people were probably more anxious, let's say, let's say they were working from home now and they weren't working from home before, maybe that person will be more susceptible now to click a link that they wouldn't before because now they're doing something different. You know, their their pattern of life and the way that they're doing things just made it fertile ground, I would say, for hackers. So, uh, so yeah, I think working from home definitely creates an issue because especially not all companies were able to give people like computers. So like they were using their own computers or not all companies had their systems put in place where all their data could be stored, you know, with the company. So, you know, I've, I've even seen people who, let's say in the office, they were restricted in printing. And then when they come home, you know, obviously they're not connected to their office printer. People send any documents to their own personal accounts to send it someplace else so they can print it. You know, there are all those kind of data leaks um, that that happen. And because, you know, people were rushing to to transition uh, from the office to work from home, there are just a lot of opportunities and gaps that happen that uh, make cybercrime just that much more, you know, susceptible, I guess. So the individuals that are normally not as susceptible to social engineering now due to COVID and the isolation lets their guard down. So then now they are more susceptible. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, uh, I think people, you know, let's say you wouldn't typically, you know, I've seen this too, where, you know, People, let's say you're working with a business customer or something and you typically wouldn't have gotten an email from them like 10 o'clock at night. Like maybe that's normal now. You know what I mean? So just thinking about those changes that we're, we have to adapt to and hackers are really looking at this uh, very closely and taking advantage of it. They don't have to create the emergency or the situation is there already. So they're part of the way there already. So. Along the same lines of, of COVID-19 and the emergence there, do you see any emergence with certain security controls or technology, specifically encryption? So do you see or hope to see data encryption going more mainstream as organizations assess their data protection now and not only as a best practice, but also to meet compliance and regulatory demands? Yeah, you know, encryption is a complex issue. So I'll bring it up a notch. So um, let's talk about cryptography. So encryption is a type of cryptography. I think there's probably going to be a lot of different types of cryptography that will sort of be, you know, rolled out. But encryption is the most popular, obviously. Um, And then, I don't know, I think it's going to be incumbent upon the company to decide what exactly they want to encrypt and how they want to do it. So 
I know some companies, they, you know, maybe they want their device encrypted or they want you to log into a workspace that's encrypted. Um, the problem with that is if you take it out of the workspace, it's not encrypted or, you know what I'm saying? So there are a lot of different places that data can live and a lot of people don't understand the differences about what's encrypted and what isn't. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Business Insider called me up and they wanted me to give them some comments about Dropbox and how you use Dropbox. And uh, the language they were using is, you know, vulnerability. And I'm like, that's really not the right term. So the issue with Dropbox is it, not just Dropbox, but this is just, just explains the encryption issue, right? So so Dropbox is kind of a cloud storage service. So you store your data on Dropbox and they have their own, you know, encryption, uh, you know, when it's up in the cloud, that's great. And then they have encryption in transit, right? The data going back and forth. But then if you replicate, uh, if you use their sync feature where you're replicating that data down to your computer, that's not encrypted unless you encrypted it, right? So people misunderstand what is encrypted and what is not encrypted. And then another parallel to that would be uh, WhatsApp. So uh, Paul Manafort, I don't know if you all remember this. This is one of my favorite stories. Uh, So he was using WhatsApp because he thought it was encrypted, which it was, you know, using it a certain way. But what he didn't understand is that he was backing up his WhatsApp to his iCloud. That was not encrypted. So then people can read all your messages. So I think it's really incumbent upon the organization to really think through what is encrypted and what isn't and make sure that they're educating employees about where they need to store their data or or the workflows they need to do to make sure that the data is as protected as possible. Because you can't assume that everything is encrypted in the same way. So you can encrypt, you know, you can encrypt at the file net level, a device level, a folder level. So there are lots of different ways that people can apply it. But I think people get confused about what is encrypted and what isn't. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it goes the same way for cloud services, right? Even on the enterprise level, AWS, Azure, you know, a lot of those cloud services, you have native controls there. But depending on how you handle that data on-prem could expose you depending on your internal controls. Right. And then I think the cloud gave people just a a false sense of security where they don't, uh, some people thought, okay, let's put it in the cloud. And then that means that I, I somehow relinquish ownership or I relinquish my responsibility to what I need to do to protect the data in the cloud. So you park it in the cloud, but it's your incumbent on whoever parked it in the cloud to be able to protect it, right? Yeah. Are there any standards or regulations to help control the cloud providers and what they do with the data that's in their systems? No, not really. Um, you know, obviously they have to follow like consumer consumer laws. Like, for example, if they say that they encrypt something to a certain degree, they they have to make sure that they follow that. So that would be covered by like false claim or uh, deceptive practices uh, under the FTC. So that's probably one thing. And then as we see some of these state regulations follow follow through like the CCPA in California, where they're saying 
you have to make sure that the person knows if you're going to transfer data back and forth. But a lot of that gets sort of fleshed out in the contracts that you have with these cloud providers. Um, the one thing that I t- try to tell people, and they some people don't really understand this, is when you put data in the cloud, unless you pay for it to be redundant, like uh, a backup of that, you know, any backup that the cloud provider has is for their own purposes. It's not for your purpose. So I think if you want to have some type of redundancy or backup in the cloud or or even on-premise, you have to either pay extra for that or you have to make some type of provision for that within your own environment. So the cloud is really to keep your data up to date as it is today, not necessarily uh, you know, like in a, let's say in a disaster recovery uh, or, or disaster situation where you say, okay, we lost data and we need data from, you know, three weeks ago. That's really not, you know, unless you created that workflow, um, you know, with a cloud provider on premise, you really wouldn't have that. So the cloud is sort of as your data is today. So there are no repercussions if, let's say, a cloud provider takes a backup of data and you're a customer that handles regulated data. If those backups are compromised, there's no repercussion for the customer or is there even a a system of checks and balances where if that did happen, do they have to disclose? Yeah. Well, yeah. So there, there's a teeny bit, I guess, of check and balance where they do have to disclose that if they had a breach or compromise of some sort uh, that exposed records uh, outside of kind of your agreement. Um, but that is, you know, again, that's incumbent upon upon them to do that and, you know, report to whatever authorities. And it's different for every state. So depending on the state that you live in, uh, there may be different reporting requirements in terms of time frame, in terms of what is considered like a rec- a customer record in terms of, you know, the types of data that's breached. So, for example, let's say if something was breached that isn't, you know, fall under the data type uh, that, a comp- that a state would consider like a personal record, they may not even need to let you know that that was breached. So the regulations all over the board about data breach uh, right now. So there are uh, data breach notification laws in every state but they're different. They're a little bit different in every state. So it just creates a confusing situation. That sounds really similar to tax code. You know, I mean, most startups are registered in Delaware for tax purposes. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, this is, so I guess this would be the the opposite of that. So I think people, um, businesses that have consumers in California, they obviously have to comply with the CCPA, but then if they have consumers in other states, they don't have to comply with that. So yeah, it's just different. Is is that actually a, a trend? Is there a corporate strategy around establishing data repositories in unregulated areas? Yeah. For risk so purposes? I've seen some really interesting things happen uh, as a result of CCPA. So uh, two things. One is that some companies are saying it's a pain to just treat California differently. So we're going to extend 
the rights of people to do things like make a data subject access request or request deletion of their data or have someone request to stop the sale of their data. They're going to do it on a national level. So that means that they'll extend, they'll treat other people in other states as if they were a Californian. So two companies I know that are doing that right now are PayPal and I think eBay does it. PayPal, eBay, and Microsoft for sure. I know that they sort of extended that. But the other side of what I'm seeing is really interesting is that I'm seeing states or companies in different states saying, you know, we know that we don't we don't have to comply with CCPA, but we're aligning on a technology side in term uh, with CCPA so that if, for example, let's say their state uh, passes a law that's like CCPA, they'll actually have the capability on the back end to be able to comply. So I think I think because um, Silicon Valley is in California and California is very influential. Um, so the state of California uh, has uh, people say yeah, one in eight people in the U.S. is California. So they're very influential in terms of kind of laws and regulation that they pass. And California is very progressive on privacy. So I think uh, the people who don't have or the states that don't have a strong regulation like the CCPA companies are looking on the back end to try to comply or uh, align with it uh, from a technology perspective. So an example of that is I live in the state of Illinois. And the state of Illinois had like our DMV system is with the Secretary of State of the State of Illinois. And when CCPA came out, uh, it was funny because the website actually had a do not sell my data button on it. And that's really supposed to be for uh, California residents. So I thought it was really interesting that they put that on there. But that sort of tells me and I sort of seen anecdotally that companies are trying to create or create workflows so that if it ever came to pass that their state had that law, that they would be able to comply. So let's fast forward real quick to privacy and what it would look like after this pandemic is over. And, and what I'm referring to is the development of the vaccine digital passports and systems that are going to store personal test information in order for permissible action, such as boarding a plane. Uh, I've seen one, I think it was in London where you need to show proof that you got the vaccine to enter a bar, et cetera, et cetera. So in your opinion, do you see this as a positive movement or more as an invasion of privacy? And what should individuals do to prepare for this and protect themselves the best way that they possibly can? That's a great question. Uh, so it's going to be different from country to country. Uh, in the U.S., privacy is not a fundamental human right. It's more of a consumer right. And then in Europe, their privacy is a fundamental human right. So because of that, and also two big differences, I would say, between the U.S. and other countries is that a lot of these other countries, they have universal health care and we don't here in the U.S. So in the U.S., we have HIPAA. So HIPAA has a privacy rule about how data is, is private data or health data is handled about an individual in a patient provider 
context. Let's say you're downloading a consumer app. It has nothing to do with your doctor or something. And you're putting in information there or it's collecting information about you and COVID. That data is really only protected at a consumer level, which is much lesser protection than um, than a medical provider setting. And then two, there really is no protection for stuff that you volunteer. So let's say you go on the internet and say, oh, I had COVID or something. Like that's not protected information because you like actually gave it out like for free. So uh, I think the challenge will be depending on how these health passes or how these immunity passports, they say, are going to be handled. It's going to be challenging. So uh, in the U.S., those things will be uh, subject to consumer laws. But again, consumer laws are less stringent than kind of like a HIPAA protection or something like that. So to flip it over to like the the EU, um, because they have universal health care and a lot of the data collection that they're doing, may be related to their healthcare and they have stronger laws. They have more protection over their data as it relates to COVID and immunity passports. So we don't have that here in the U.S. So I think it's going to be challenging people. I think people assume any medical data is protected more than other data. That's just not the case. So I think, um, you know, I don't, I think this is going to be like the new normal where we're going to be sharing more health information outside of medical settings and then having a system where things like vaccines and stuff are tracked. It's just going to be more complex, I think, for people. Although needed. Yeah, right. It has to happen. And, you know, this time last year, I don't think anyone could even comprehend that we would be in a place where we would be talking about this. but. This is like a real thing. And, you know, people want to be able to travel again and do different things. So, you know, I think one of the things I'm concerned about are people not having the means to be able to have digital passports. So only about 45 percent of people in the world have smartphones right now. And a lot of this capability is very reliant on smartphones unless we do other types of things to try to link people into systems where, they can be able to travel more freely if they, they're able to have a capability to have these passports. How critical are the next year, a few years, um, in understanding this rapid shift to a more open healthcare sharing type of environment? Yeah. And where do you think it will erode to, or, or do you think it will eventually reach a point of no return where we'll basically be walking around with our blood type on, uh, you know, on our sleeve or. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's gonna, uh, it's gonna develop or accelerate rapidly where a lot of different, um, a lot of different things are going to come into play. So what I, what I see is that things about health now are going to end up being connected to your identity. Um, Almost like, uh, you know, in the U.S. before COVID and everything, uh, the U.S. had this real ID push where you go to the DMV, you give them all this stuff and they put a star on your your um, your ID. And basically all it says is that they verify that you are who you say you are and they put that information into a 
federal database as opposed to a state database. So that's really what real ID is. So I see eventually this health information is going to get connected somehow to your individual records and that stuff is going to follow you sort of where you go. So I think people are probably going to be shocked. That's going to be the way things are going to go. Uh, Because even with the real ID thing, you know, they were saying the idea is certain places you can and can't go if you don't have that. So they were saying you won't be able to fly if you don't have that real ID. You won't be able to enter federal buildings if you don't have a real ID. So I sort of see the COVID thing being almost parallel to that, where you're going to get this this, uh, immunity passport, so to speak. And I think beyond travel is going to be used in so many different ways because in the U.S., a lot of times that data can be repurposed because there's not that many strong laws against that. That's very interesting. I'd like to hit on something real quick, and this is something that you posted recently online. uh, And I believe that you created this term called data purpose jacking. And you (laughs) you describe it as the act of companies taking data for one purpose and then using it for a different purpose. Would you mind going into that a little bit, explain how that happens? And and if you have seen this happen, perhaps a real use case that we could relate to. Oh, sure, sure. So yeah, I created the term because I didn't really find a term that could really explain the phenomenon that I was seeing, which is, you know, especially you think about apps too. So you have an app on your phone, you know how it just, you know, it updates or whatever. Let's say, for instance, you had an app that had a flashlight. It was a flashlight app. And then tomorrow is a game or they add a game into it or something. So that means that they're doing, they're giving you a different service and they're possibly doing different things with that data. Or maybe it's a quiz now. And it wasn't a quiz before. And then they're going to take that information and use it in some different way. Um, so the example that I was using on the video that I did about this was about a a company called Ever Album that was basically a cloud service to store photos. And what they Ever Album decided to do is that they wanted to create a database where they could do facial recognition. So basically they, they created an algorithm and started doing facial recognition scan on the photos that people uploaded there. And then they bought, I think, two or three different other databases. And they were trying to match up other data about people that they hadn't given to the company about that person. And their idea was once they created this master database, they would be able to sell that information. So just imagine your picture, say you and your grandma are on a picture. And that's all that's on the, the, the site. They want us to know what like what your grandma's name was, possibly where she lived, possibly this other stuff. So they got in trouble with the FTC because um, this goes back to deceptive practices where they're they said that the data really is supposed to be a hosting service for an individual to put their photos. What they didn't say is that they were going to do facial recognition and try to sell this data to someone someone else. So the FTC basically made them delete the data their work, you know, to create these databases and also the algorithm, because none of those things were things that people had that knew about or they agreed to when they first had it. So um, it's a tricky situation because 
you could, you know, you know, the other example I gave, let's say you had a flashlight app and then it, they added a game to it or something. You may think that's okay. You know, okay, well, I'll, you know, go along with this. But at some point, these companies may be changing too much where you're thinking, you know, the way the change that they're making is not something that I would agree to if I if I had known that they were going to do this thing. So in a way, I would say uh, another parallel that that would be probably WhatsApp. So uh, WhatsApp, when uh, Facebook bought them, it was kind of a privacy lovers app for being able to do messages. And I knew a lot of people liked it because it was much cheaper than making phone calls, right? So they could like communicate with people in other countries and do so cheaply. But when they were, when they bought uh, WhatsApp, they made promises to the EU and the US about not trying to combine that data with their Facebook stuff um, in terms of advertising and being able to sell that information. So uh, they, I think they got in some hot water because they had they were actually doing that. So recently uh, they put out a privacy policy update for WhatsApp and basically said, you know, we are going to use this data for targeting and we're going to combine it with the Facebook data. And a lot of people were in, in an uproar about that. So in some ways, I think that's akin to purpose jacking, data purpose jacking, because people who were using that app would not have probably used it if they had known it was going to be shared in that way. So I think just vigilance is important. Um, And then in the U.S., there aren't strong enough laws, I don't think, for those types of changes, um, except in situations where it's being done or being shown to be like a deceptive practice. So even if it's not deceptive, so it's good that Facebook updated that privacy policy. But again, I think from a consumer perspective, a lot of people would not have gotten that app had they known that. This is really similar to what we just saw in Philadelphia with the vaccine clinic, right? What happened? Philly fighting COVID was a startup. Um, It was a 22-year-old individual, really bright young man, um, decided to present to city officials around his plan to vaccinate the city of Philadelphia. Upon administering those vaccines, there was one terms of, of uh, uh, what would you call it? A privacy disclosure, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that it was a nonprofit company uh, that was administering these vaccines. And then the CEO switched the terms and conditions and readministered the privacy disclosure to everybody who had already received a vaccine to in fact change the company from a non-for-profit to a for-profit company and then planned, apparently planned on selling that data, uh, the healthcare data, in essence, deceptively collecting information with a future plan to sell that healthcare information at a later time. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's very similar. Right. Because people probably would not have done that if they had known they would have been sold, right? So yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. You mentioned privacy policies. So just recently we've been getting inundated with updates to privacy policies. Is that sort of a way for a company to just get it through to you without making it blatant? 
Yes, that's absolutely true. So you should definitely read those. Um, you know, I think all of us have way too many apps and way too many things that we use, but the things you really care about, like with your health or finances, make sure you definitely read through that and make sure you agree to it. Uh, the, the loophole here in the U.S. is because if a company can tell you what they're doing, right, they can sort of sidestep the deceptive practices to some degree. And then if you agree to it, consent, uh, you know, I tell people a lot of times, especially with free apps or whatever, um, because you're not paying for it, they're saying, you know, in exchange for whatever it is that you give us, we'll let you use our app for free, but you don't know to what extent or what you're consenting to. So, you know, I was telling people, you know, you can't, it's illegal to sell your organs, but that's about it. So you can consent to almost anything. Uh, you know, there was one app that came out. I don't know if you remember the one that came out a couple of years ago. It was the app that would, um, you take your picture and it will age your face, like show you what you look like you're older. And people are looking at the terms and conditions of this app. And it literally said that if you took your, if you uh, had the app store your picture, that they had like the worldwide exclusive right forever to use your photograph. So who's to say that your picture is not going to show up on a billboard in Japan in 10 years? You know, so it's sort of like a delay of the harm. So it's like, take the app, use it, you know, say yes to 80 pages of terms or conditions. And then they're going to do something totally different, you know, for an app that you use for 20 minutes, you know, 10 years from now, they still have the rights to your image. Do you think in the future, once more people are educated around this type of thing, we'll be able to change what's already been done? For example, if we weren't aware, that we use the app because it's a common practice that we don't normally read through the entire terms and conditions? I think so. I think if enough people are upset about it or enough people, you know, want to be vocal about it, there can be movements where change will happen. So I was happy and surprised that people were upset about this WhatsApp change. Right. So I think a lot of people have always thought in the U.S. or the conventional wisdom is that people in the U.S. don't really care about their privacy. And I don't think that that's true. I think it's a lot of people don't know what's happening with their data. They assume if you give your data to a company for one purpose, that they're just going to use it for that purpose. So like an example is that those DNA kits that people do to find out like their heritage and stuff like that. You know, if you read the terms of condition, they tell you that they they will share this data with law enforcement. And who knows? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I don't think people who are trying to find their heritage are thinking about their sort of seeding, you know, law enforcement databases. You know, that's not what they their intention was. I feel yeah. like sometimes when I try to explain this to family and friends, they look at me as if I'm the fanatic. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Like I'm the only person in my family that doesn't. It's not on Facebook. And they've been like on my case for, you know, 50 for as long as Facebook has existed. And they're like, you know, I think it comes up almost every conversation. Are you on Facebook? I'm like, no, I'm not on Facebook. So, yeah, you're we're like the odd man now. I'm the person in the corner with the tinfoil hat, I guess. 
But that's a, a good segue in, in, into my last question. And, and it's focused on the digital market. You know, data reigns supreme everywhere and it's increasing the value of market power between services like Facebook or, or even devices now that capture sensitive information. So it, it, in a way, it's a cutting edge topic when you talk about having access to private information and using it as a competitive advantage. And it's certainly a growing threat to individuals, but curious to get your take on that and competition law, uh, which is aimed to regulate that market power and ensure fair handling of personal data. Right. Yeah. So a good question. This is a complex question. And uh, let, once I tell you my answer, let me know if I completed all, all of your answering your, all of your questions. Gotcha. So, I think one challenge or one issue that I have a competition law is that it's sort of it's first of all, it's very antiquated and it sort of assumes things that aren't true about digital information. So antitrust is sort of created or antitrust law is sort of created or thought about in a way like, let's say let's say there were eight. No, let's say there were 100 oil fields in the U.S. Uh, and one person owned all of those oil fields. So antitrust will say, you know, because this person owns all the oil fields in the U.S., we need to break it up so that we can spread out those, you know, 100 oil fields amongst other people so that it creates more competition and choice for people, right? And it sort of keeps the cost down, this kind of idea. The problem with trying to apply this to a digital world is that data is almost like an infinite resource. So there are not a hundred oil fields. There are billions of oil fields. And so you can't give it all, not one person or not one company holds all this information. And then two, um, you know, it's not really the same thing. So like if, like, for example, I'll give an example. So Amazon bought Whole Foods, okay? And that, uh, that along with 500 other mergers and acquisitions got approved by the FTC, which is fine. But to me, that should have raised someone's eyebrow about competition where isn't it the fact that let's say if Amazon had bought another company like Amazon, they probably would have been like, oh my God, we're going to have like all these antitrust issues. But the issue is they were not creating a monopoly in the traditional sense, but they are creating a data monopoly where they're gathering all these different types of data about people under one roof. And that's, to me, that's sort of a miss on the antitrust thing. And that's because people are thinking about it in sort of those antiquated ways where digital is totally different. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another subject when you look at big tech and, and how much they can gain from you. And I'm just curious, you know, what partnerships big tech has out there that you don't know about. It's scary. Yeah. I know that regulators are in the, in the EU at least are concerned about this. Uh, is Google trying to buy Fitbit? Yes. Yeah. So they're concerned about that. Uh, because of the privacy challenges where they're like, so what are you going to do? The fact that, you know, sort of, you know, that I'm going down the street and get this pizza. And then also, you know, my heart rate or that I have high blood pressure. Whereas, you know, what 
you know, are going to sell this information to an insurance company, are going to sell it to like an employment agency where someone's going to be discriminated against. So they're concerned about those companies having so many different types of data about people. So the really the big ones are kind of financial and health and then everything else. So the, com- the companies like Amazon, they almost have everything else. So all they really need is the financial and the health information. And that's, um, that's probably going to happen because of COVID. You know, and what's going through my head as Debbie is describing the situation, I'm thinking, isn't it already there? Because Apple, you know, I just got an iPhone. I've been an Android user for 14 years mm-hmm. um, and I caved. I, I wanted to be able to send <laughs> videos of our dogs to my girlfriend and she was an iPhone user. And any Android users out there, you know that you have to trim the video and then it messes with the quality and it, it, it's horrible. But on iPhone, I can send a three minute video and it's in it's in high def. And that alone was enough to make me switch over from one okay. platform to another. Mm-hmm. But now I have this wonderful little Apple health app that tracks my sleep, my steps, everything. So don't they already have it? I mean, is, is at that point, isn't it just a matter of, of, of messing with verbiage in terms of privacy policy and things like that? Yes, I would say in some degree they do, but some of it is, uh, what's what I look for? The data is more valuable if they know is more correct. So they can guess. So let's say you give your phone to your girlfriend and she walks, you know, a thousand steps. They don't know for sure that it's you, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But the more detailed, exact information they get will make the data more valuable. So one example of this that I give people is that I don't know if you all remember many years ago where Facebook, they decided that people who are on Facebook have to use their real names. So when they started this real name policy, their profit went through the roof because it made the data that they sold more valuable. So the more exact data that they have, uh, especially data that you give them that they know is true, is more valuable uh, in the marketplace. It is much more valuable. And um, I, uh, what comes to mind is that documentary on Netflix around data privacy and how individuals that don't understand this, they make jokes. You know, the, the memes that you see, oh, my FBI guy was watching me today and sent me a, an ad on something I was just talking about. But in reality, the fact that you can profile individuals using that data and actually attempt to manipulate their own thoughts and feelings around specific subject matters because they understand from an emotional level, not just your data level, they're able to profile your emotional state and target accordingly. Right. I, are you talking about the social network? Um, the great oh. hack, actually. Okay, I saw that. Yeah. Uh, it, specifically, the use of um, Cambridge Analytica who was basically um, performing what the movie referred to as psychological operations, which according to the makers of Cambridge Analytica is considered a weapons grade technology. Yeah. They had a thing with Cambridge Analytica is interesting. So I don't know if you ever, um, if you can try to find the testimony from the whistleblower, the redhead fellow, I can't remember what his name was. Mm-hmm. fascinating if you think about 
uh, stuff they were doing. So they had a thing uh, called the Kit Kat Project. So basically they had people do it, do a quiz. Uh, when they did a quiz, they would take data from the person that did the quiz and all of their connections or contacts. And then they would create, find out who these people were. Then they would create these psychological profiles and they retarget them based on what they thought they liked so or were interested in. So they were really targeting people to try to disrupt how people vote or how they think about voting. So they had this thing called the Kit Kat Project where in the data that they gathered, they found that if they sent people an anti-Semitic message and person put thumbs up on it, there was also a correlation between that and people who like Kit Kat bars. So they thought it was kind of a funny connection, but who's to say that someone else looking at this data wouldn't say, if you like Kit Kat bars, that means you're anti-Semite. That is what can happen when you collect way too much data and people gain, gather maybe the wrong insight from that. Mm -hmm. So this is all very good information uh, for the aspiring professionals that are passionate about learning the aspects of data security. Mm -hmm. What would your advice be to them? And the reason I ask that is because I think it's a blind spot mm -hmm. right now for those entering the industry. Are there any specific resources that you would recommend online or training that focuses solely in data security? I would say cybersecurity is like a huge area. So there are so many different facets of it. So I would say for someone who's thinking about going to cybersecurity, maybe go online and take, you know, like Udemy has some free classes, something that gives you like a bigger, broader perspective. And then once you have that, figure out what area that you want to sort of target. Like, so I just had a conversation with someone. He wants to go into cybersecurity, but he wants to do like ethical ha hacking and pen testing. So that's like a different, you know, path. So cybersecurity has so many different domains. And I think when people talk about it, you know, even they sort of loop in privacy as well. So it's so, so big. It's hard for people to figure out sort of where they want to go. So I would say figure out kind of what the scope of cybersecurity is and then find the area that you really want to go, go into. And then once you find that area, it'll help you target what's the best thing to have. So, cause I know a lot of people, they see all these certifications and they don't know what they should take or, you know, what path they want to go down. But I think just being able to, you know, follow people on LinkedIn, if there are particular topics that you're interested in, you know, follow those people, see what they're doing. Uh, if there's some, a particular thing you're really interested in, I think it's great to, obviously you want to know kind of all the facets of uh, cybersecurity, but then you probably want to try to specialize in the thing that you think is best and then, then sort of have your certifications and the other education that you have uh, uh, focus on that. So, and I guess the other thing with cybersecurity, there's kind of like the, maybe the classroom learning uh, or education. And then there's kind of like a real world learning or, or just at least the awareness. So being able to plug into, again, people who, maybe our influencers in this area that are putting out really good content, uh, it will sort of help you to educate yourself about the new things that are going on and the things that you need to be sort of thinking about for the future. Absolutely. 
So the last two questions I have are, are really just meant to be fun. Okay. As a data security professional, I tend to always gravitate to security vulnerabilities in everyday life. From, like we mentioned before, what social media posts reveal about a person or how businesses handle securing credit cards when taking payments. So when you're out and about at a bar, what are some things that you notice or pick up on as security risks? Well, my sister laughs at me about this. I've done this for years. So when I'm, let's say I'm paying for something or I'm like transacting business or whatever, I don't want anybody to talk to me. So I don't want to be distracted because somewhat like, you know, let's say you're showing your credit card or something or they may overhear something or whatever. If you're not paying attention, someone uh, who has maybe ill intent towards you could possibly get information that may make you vulnerable. You know what I'm saying? So I try to not uh, be distracted uh, when I'm transacting stuff. So uh, like, especially when I'm out of the country. So if I'm like, taking my wallet out, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm not doing other things. I'm not talking to other people. I'm just trying to hurry up and do my transaction make sure I'm, you know, like no one's like looking or, you know, no one's lurking and stuff like that. So that's one thing that I think is helpful because I know a lot of people, they don't understand if someone like say a pickpocket, they, they're all about distraction. So they will create a distraction just to sort of get you off your game. So I will say when you're transacting business with financial stuff and your you know, money and stuff like that, your credit cards and wallet, you don't let other people distract you. Yeah, that's a great answer. It's, it's accidental data loss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So it's last call here at the bar. So I have one more question for you. If you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, mm-hmm. what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Ooh, a cybersecurity bar. Oh, wow. Let's see. Uh, maybe the bar we called, I don't know. Cyberside, C S I D. That's a good one. <laughs> or maybe C I D E. I don't know. <laughs> I'd like that. Would it be on the side of the road? Yes. Okay. Yes. Of course. Of course. I can see that. And then, like a signature drink. Oh wow! What would a signature drink? Maybe it'd be you know Solar Winds special or something. Like I'd name it after a hack or something like that. That'd be fun. <laughs> Straight alcohol. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. How about you, Ken? Have you given that any thought? Yeah, I would have to call. The, I'd probably call the drink like like a Tito's Target or something like that. <laughs> um, or <laughs> that would be funny. Would you mind sharing your online footprint with us? Where can our listeners find you? Sure. So I have a website, DebbieReynoldsConsulting.com. Um, I'm also active on LinkedIn. Happy to accept connection requests. So send me a connection request from Debbie Reynolds, uh, Data Diva on LinkedIn. I also have a podcast. You can see links to it either on my LinkedIn or on my website. It's the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast. It also has transcripts there. So if you listen to the podcast and read the transcript. Uh, and yes, I do a lot of speaking events. I try to post that on my website so that people can link in with me. But yeah, I'm happy to connect with people. I'm always happy to, to chat or, you know, just touch base and find out what people are up to. Thank you so much, Debbie, for sharing your insight with us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. 
Thanks for your time. Awesome. Thanks again. Take care and be safe. I will. You too. Barcode patrons, if you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.